0: Let's pray. Father, we ask that you would use your word, these two brief verses, to do a, a powerful work in our lives, especially as we find ourselves in a culture that that so opposes Christ, that so opposes your word, and as we deal with our own fallen passions that oppose our faith. God, we pray that you would help us and that you would conform us to Jesus, and it's in his name that we pray, amen. There are times when there are um, very public trials when a witness who is uh, witnessing against a, a criminal who's done some pretty uh, outrageous and dangerous thing, things, a, a witness needs to go into a witness protection program And when those are elaborate, the the witness has his or her, all of her vestiges or his vestiges of their prior identity basically erased. In the high-profile cases, the witness is relocated, literally. Sometimes they're given a new look through plastic surgery. They get new names, new birth records, new family histories and genealogies. They get a new identity, a fabricated whole new story, with new um, ways of defining the person. In essence, for a person in a high-level witness protection program, the old world is gone, and there's this whole new world created in which the witness now lives. Now in many ways, what Peter is writing to these Christians in Asia Minor is very similar to some of the dynamics that I just mentioned to you. Yet the changes for the believers are even more thorough than the kind of new identity granted in a witness protection program. And of course, it's all more positive <laughs> in the way that Peter puts it much more positive. When a man or a woman comes to Christ, friends, when we come to Christ, we are born again into a living hope in our union with jesus and therefore we have an entire new identity yeah we keep the same names but we have a new identity a a new life a new future you see once bound for destruction and hopelessness we are now bound to jesus and We have seen in 1 Peter that we are his cherished possession. We are relocated, even though we haven't moved, we are relocated as temporary residents and foreigners. And of course, this change for us is not geographical, but it's relational. It is spiritual. It's been said that we in this world are renters, not owners. We are renters, not owners. And this is because that by the undeserved mercy and the prior love of God, we belong fully to Him. Friends, I want you to hear that. He loves you. And you belong to Him fully in body and soul, in life and in death. But... And this is where we come to our two powerful verses today. Since we belong to Jesus so intimately, it means we do not belong to this world. Philippians 3.20 says that our citizenship, our location, if you will, is in heaven. And from it, we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Colossians 3 says that we are seated with Christ in the heavenly places, and that animates our life and our living now here on this earth. You know the song, I I Left My Heart in San Francisco. Well, your heart is left with Jesus. Your heart, in a way, is situated and located in heaven And that means that knowing who we are and whose we are, this allows us to live faithfully in this very faithless age. And so Peter goes into these very practical statements here by saying to those Christians who are facing so much opposition, he calls them beloved. They are sojourners, they are pilgrims, but they are loved by God and they are loved by God. But also Peter loves them. And so he is calling them dear friends. And and sometimes when you're facing trials, I have said to you, I love you as your pastor, as your friend, but Jesus loves you so much more. So much more. And so dear friends, loved ones, there are two themes that we're gonna look at in just two verses. The first is a negative internal one. There is a negative internal one And this is battling for the soul or warring against the passions. This is negative and it's internal. And the second is positive and it's outward and it's living honorably before the Gentiles or before the nations. And so first, the negative internal issue. Again, Peter says, loved ones, as sojourners and exiles, as those who are traveling through this world because you belong to heaven, He says, I urge you to abstain from the passions of the flesh, the lust of the flesh, that wage war against your soul. Now there is so much being said and written about the culture wars that seem to be heating up even more these days. And we need to step back and ask, why is that happening? Well, it's, it's happening because it goes all the way back to Genesis 1. But I was, I'm reminded this week by um, a Catholic scholar named Mary Everstadt out of Cornell University, and she wrote a really strong but gracious essay recently that's entitled, Men Are at War with God. And I think that just perfectly sums up what's, what's going on in, in culture, but it's always been going on in one way or another. And yet... As we think of the theme of warfare, Christian warfare is not primarily directed outward. And that's very interesting. Think about that. We find in Ephesians 5 that spiritual warfare is against the heavenly uh, forces and principalities and powers that would overthrow our faith. And here in this passage we read that Warfare is against the passions of the flesh in us that wage war against us. And so warfare in this context is an inward battle. Peter says you have your own fallen lust that would undo you. Now, the term fleshly passion means simply the fallen aspects of who we are it's not saying that our physical life is bad, not at all. It's it's referring more to those parts of us that are turned away from God, that want to define ourselves apart from him and seek our own longings. It is dealing with uh, the flesh that is tainted by sin. And this can be a number of, of passions that we have to battle against. It can be jealousy, envy, selfish ambition it can be hatred and idolatry or drunkenness or the love of money or or laziness and idleness that can actually lead to uh, us getting in trouble with all of the other things that i've just mentioned and what peter is saying is that the danger is that we let our fallen passions derail us and lead us into a ditch such that we damage our souls. There are just two things I want to elaborate on a bit because it really does seem, and scholars would say this, that it seems that Peter is honing in on a few things in particular when you think about the intense passions of the flesh. And the first is probably anger. Anger. It, It refers not only to outbursts of wrath but also the quieter kind of simmering rage that maybe more of us, if we're honest, struggle with. It it means being too easily triggered and and set off. Now for me, the struggle is when um, I'm driving and people get up on my tail and I have my right blinker on, I'm trying to turn right, and they're just right up on me. And then I think, do I have a Christian bumper sticker on my car? (laughs) Uh, pastors like Christian bumper sticker stories (laughs) and driving stories. And I think, you know, maybe I should have a Christian bumper sticker on my car. But these things, when they happen, we get angry when something or someone is not operating on our terms. Or more to the point, we may get angry when, when someone isn't smart, when they're unwise, or when they hurt us, either um, intentionally or unintentionally, we can struggle with anger. And we have this frustration that we don't have the divine ability to control everything and everyone. And so we get angry. But James 1:19 to 20 says, know this, my beloved, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger, For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. And so Peter is saying, put distance between you and the passion of anger that can stir up so many problems in relationships and in churches and in society. But it also seems that Peter is dealing here with um, the passions of sexual immorality now In 1 Corinthians 6, we are told to flee sexual immorality. Many of you know that the the word for sexual immorality is porneia, from which we, of course, get the word pornography. And sexual immorality is, is really any sort of activity, sexual activity or fantasizing outside the blessed boundary is a marriage between one man and one woman. And this, of course, is under great assaults in our culture. In the last 10 years, I've become more self-conscious when I say that in a public setting. The pro- problem with sex, though, is not its createdness, friends. It's, it's fallenness. It is not the way God gave it, but what we as humans do with it. See, churches need to reiterate from the Scripture that that God's view of sexuality is very positive, very beautiful, very constructive. He made us and our bodies very good, designing sex not only for procreation but for pleasure. And so Proverbs 5.18 says, let your fountain be blessed and rejoice in the wife of your youth, and this week i'm not in the mood to read further on but <laughs> you can do it after the service it is very descriptive and so what first peter is saying is abstain from the corruption of that goodness keep your distance from it again the word abstain means separate yourself And let go of those things that would derail you and put you in a ditch and damage your soul. You see, such passions, Peter is saying, belong to the world, but you don't belong to the world. You belong to Jesus. And yet, we have to situate this in our world. The sexual revolution continues apace. And things are changing rapidly in the last few years. But at this point, you know, I thought about dealing with some of the extreme things happening in our culture, but I I think it would be wise to address what may be a greater temptation for most churches like ours. And that is the issue of pornography. There's a poll that came out recently that found that most men and women in a national sample, two different groups, worked on this poll. and it's changing. The sample expressed some level from men and from women of uh, approval for pornographic use, and that included with couples. But you see, and I'm not going to go into all the statistics with this, but if we come back to First Peter, what he's saying is that this thing that is gaining so much approval in the culture aims to control, to dominate, to overthrow, to harm, to kill. it wages war and you see when war is waged it is done so to either win or to bring about a loser part of what the studies have said is that in that growing majority of approval christian men and women are part of that and so christians the church need to know we need to know that there is no peacekeeping treaty in this war friends If we were to put this in psychological terms, we would call it self-sabotage, unless we fight. I want to end this portion positively. I want to bring you back to the main things that Peter has been saying, that you are God's treasured possession. You are a holy nation, which means you need each other's help. I need your help. You need my help as we aim to live as Christ set apart people. In chapter one, verse 18, Peter said, know, know it in your bones that you were ransomed from the futile, the empty, destructive ways of your forefathers and you were ransomed with the precious blood of Christ, the lamb without blemish or stain. There's a story that's sometimes been used to illustrate all this, and it's probably legendary, but um, the point still applies. It's been around for a while, and it's a story of a young boy who had great skill in craftsmanship. He he was good at engineering, if you will, but also had artistic skills. And he had done all this research, and he was into making um, model boats. And so he, he did research, and he had his father's help, but, but he, over many months, constructed a beautiful, almost accurate to scale, but smaller, it was a beautiful sailboat. He painted it, he put it together, he used a lot of uh, uh, you know, wood, and, and, and he really put his time into it. He put his soul into it. And he went out to a lake near where his house was when it was all finished, And there was a big wind, and he put it out on the lake, and lo and behold, uh, the boat disappeared because the wind caught it, or it caught the sails, and it went away. And and he was bummed, he was sad, he was dejected. Uh, His creation was gone from him. And so he went to his mother, and he told her about this, and he said, oh, you know, I'm sad about this. And she said, well, you know, it just means that you built the boat really well. Those sails actually worked. And so the months went by, and the boy was in the city center, and he was walking by a store uh, that was selling um, different things, antiques, but also some new products, and he noticed in the store window what looked to be his boat. He would know his boat. So he went in, and he talked to the store owner, and he said, you know, that's my boat. I, I made that. And the store owner said, well, you know, it doesn't matter. Somebody sold me the boat. It's my boat. If you want it, you have to buy it. The boy picked it up, he looked at it, he noticed his, marks, his, his craftsmanship, he saw the little nicks from the screwdriver, the paint job, it was clearly his. It has his, his identity all over it. But he wasn't gonna steal it, so he went back and he worked for months, he saved up some gift money from his grandmother, he mowed lawns, because his boat was worth something. And he went, went back to the store owner and he bought it and he looked at the boat and he said you're twice mine i have made you and i have bought you back and friends what peter is saying all throughout this letter especially about these supercharged issues he says christians you are twice mine i have created you And I have recovered you at the price of my blood. I have made you and I have purchased you as my own treasured possession. He says to you and to me, you are twice mine. Or in the language of 1 Corinthians 6, Paul says, you are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. Peter said that we are living stones being built up as a spiritual house. And who lives in the spiritual house? The Holy Spirit. So we don't grieve him. He's put his mark of identity on us. We belong to him. We are twice Jesus Christ. And so we live in light of that. And so that is the internal battle that we wage war against. But now we want to look at and close with the positive outward one. And Peter says you're to live honorably among the Gentiles. Verse 12, keep your conduct among the nations honorable. Now Christians, we are living in an unbelieving society in many ways, and, and we must avoid sinful desires and maintain exemplary lives. Again, I'm going to quote that Catholic scholar Mary Eberstedt in that article, Men Are at War with God. She said, As culture becomes increasingly hostile toward Christian convictions and foundations, believers will be met with fierce opposition. And this is true. Somebody in our congregation shared that... um, Somebody told her and her family when she became a Christian, well, you're just now one of those weird, born-again Christians. There's the fierce verbal opposition. Another Christian I know was called a bigot and a promoter of hate simply for trying to question the radical sexual ideologies that are spreading at a fevered pace. It was simply an invitation to come let us reason together to share an article or two. Not even an article by a Christian, by the way. And that person was verbally attacked. You see, when we hear these things and we see them, we need to remember what Jesus said in John 15, 18. If the world hates you and my and your ways, remember that it hated me first. And that's why Peter is addressing us as exiles. Sure, the world is going to revile us, but it reviled Jesus first. And in this pressure as it's growing, what Peter says, now, our our experience is not like that of the early Christians. Theirs was far, far worse. But as we are in this context, we need to live before the unbelieving world in such a way that is honorable, that is beautiful, Friends, it means that we hold to the firmness of our convictions with gentleness and peaceableness. It means that we are passionate and unbending about the truth, but we do this in a humble way. Now, we have certain advantages that those early Christians did not. They lived in a dictatorial empire. We live in a democracy, obviously. So we are blessed with the right to speak out truthfully and compassionately. We have the the ability to vote and shape the culture with policies that are good for our neighbors, that promote goodness and justice. And in that context, always, as kingdom people, our personal lives must be honorable. And folks may still criticize or dismiss us, but our character as we aim to conform ourselves to Jesus, those things will become counter-arguments. You see, the greatest argument for a biblical view of sexuality and relationships is Christians living consistently and beautifully with our calling. Not in a showy way, but in a way that shows Jesus and his mercy in our lives. Our Savior said in Matthew 5, in the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. You see, exemplary and honorable living puts skin on the attractive message of Jesus. It makes it more tangible, incredible. And why do we do this? Where is this all going? Peter says, so that here's the reason, when they speak ill of you, they won't be able to land a glove on you. Well, no, that's not actually what Peter says. He says, so that they may see your good deeds and glorify your God on the day of visitation. Your honorable living has an eternal impact. In the horrific tragedy that has just happened miles away last weekend, the whole world, literally, is talking about the extreme example of honor in the sacrifice of Dr. John John Chen, who charged and tackled the gunman and allowed others to intercede and live. Again, it's all over the news. He's a hero, but by all accounts, he was a very strong believer in Jesus Christ. And friends, his self-sacrificial example will be stunningly attractive, as horrific as that situation, as tragic as it is for his loved ones. It will be a stunningly attractive example to everyone who comes across his story, not just for decades, but probably for generations. Greater love has no one than this, than that a man laid down his life for his friends. What motivated this very successful doctor to do something like that, Jesus, who laid down his life to save us. But closer to home, I want to share a story with you about a conversation in one of our parishioners, a conversation I had this week. I spoke with Connie, uh, who is uh, one of our Taiwanese parishioners, and I share this story with permission. Uh, We talked about this situation, and you may know that in the news, um, part of what's going on with what happened last week is that the Chinese Communist Party puts out propaganda that, that pushes against Taiwan, and therefore Taiwanese folks it can make them feel unsafe. I didn't know this until this week. Uh, but what Connie shared with me as we talked about this, she beautifully expressed that the gracious, honorable response is for Taiwanese believers to be welcoming toward Chinese individuals, for churches to put out the welcome mat and say, hello, here is the love of Christ. Christ. Dear friends, amid intense cultural and political disagreements, we reach out to people and the war is won when we repent of our own sin, our own prejudices, our own problems, and we then show the love of Jesus in an exemplary way. You see, living for Christ isn't ultimately to win culture wars, though it certainly won't Uh, hurt but it's to win people for jesus and god will use you to show the beauty and irresistible attractiveness of the gospel and friends i think in eternity we're going to be floored to find out what god did with that some of that impact is underway folks have told me about the examples of faith and faithfulness that you demonstrate in your loving commitment to the church, to Christ, and to your families and spouses, people are impacted in in a way you don't even know. I've been told at times. And so the Jesus that we show them is the Savior we still need and who is at work in us by His Spirit. You are His holy nation. You are twice His And as we wage war against our own fallen passions, and we live in a beautiful way before the watching world, God is going to work, and Christ is going to claim others for his kingdom through us, amen? Let's pray. Father, we ask that you would use your word to work in our lives. We thank you that you have claimed us to be your people, a holy nation, a royal priesthood, and we pray that we would not soil our service to you. Forgive us when we do. Help us to turn away from our sin, whether it's anger or jealousy or idleness and laziness or anger and rage or lust god i pray that you would turn us toward good and beautiful things that you would turn us toward christ and god as we live in you and before the watching world i pray that we would remember that we are twice christ's you have made us and you have purchased us through his precious blood his markings of care are on our lives And I pray, God, that as the opposition against Christian convictions increases as it may be fierce in the coming years, I pray that we would live as faithful witnesses, that the gospel would be so attractive because we humbly live before you and live out our faith. God, we, again, thank you for the examples that have been set this last week. The greater love has no one than this, than that a man lay down his life for his friends. God, help us to live that way. And we pray that our communities around here would be floored by the beauty of living for you. Uh, We do thank you for Connie and the way that she expressed love for people that belong to a group that, oppose her people in some ways i i pray god that that we would not be caught up in prejudices but that we would boldly reach out with the love of jesus and that thereby you would win the ultimate war and it's in jesus name that we pray amen Jesus, uh, on the night that he served bread and wine to his friends, he was preparing uh, for the ultimate war. To go win what we never could, he was going to conquer sin